today is a triumph for freedom as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield. He come up and lay him down, right, right. He come up and lay him down, right, right. He come up and lay him down, right, right. All the way from Selma Town, right, right. Oh, the mud show with Pacifica Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles. This is a very special edition of the Bradcast 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, and coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app. On iTunes, on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik, five days a week. This is your broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you for joining us. As I say, this is a very special day. The 50th anniversary of the uh, crowning achievement of the civil rights era, the voting rights movement signed 50 years ago today by Lyndon B. Johnson. Some of those sounds you heard at the top of the uh, program just now were from the uh, from the march the march from Selma to Montgomery across the Edmund Pettus Bridge that turned so violent and so ugly back in uh, 1965. Uh, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about what happened in 1965. We're going to be talking about where the Voting Rights Act is now, how important it is today, and where it goes from here as the fight continues for voting rights in this country and uh, to save, frankly, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, I want to acknowledge that today, on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, it's also the very first day, uh, the first debate, the first Republican debate of the 2016 presidential election. Uh, so it's a huge day. I guess there is uh, no small amount of irony in the fact that the uh, the GOP debate, presidential debate, is happening today on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act on a day uh, at a time when Republicans are actually trying to dismantle the Voting Rights Act. In any event, uh, we will have full coverage of that first GOP debate on our next episode. The debate is actually airs after we go to air. But I know that a lot of our affiliates play the program later on, even the next day in some cases. So I wanted to assure you we will be covering it. We will have full coverage uh, coming up, I think we're going to have uh, Heather Digby Parton here to talk about it, Paul Rosenberg and some others. So I'm looking forward to that. But today, today, the Voting Rights Act was signed 50 years ago today. And among other things, the act prohibited states and political subdivisions from imposing or applying qualifications, standards, practices or procedures to deny or abridge the right to vote on account of race or color. It suspended the widespread use of literacy tests and poll taxes that were going on at the time during the Jim Crow era. It required that new voting laws in covered uh, states and local jurisdictions be approved 
before taking effect, and that was key, by the Attorney General or the federal courts on the basis of a determination that the law did not have the purpose, nor would it have the effect of denying or bridging the right to vote on account of race or color. And that was a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act stopped those laws from going into place before they went into place, before they had the chance to disenfranchise voters. That was key. And that section is now under fire. That section has been gutted, in fact, uh, effectively by the Supreme Court. Now, uh, before we get to that, the impact of the Voting Rights Act was immediate and dramatic, and it cannot be overstated when it was passed in 1965. Nearly one million black voters were registered to vote within four years of passage of the act, including over 50 percent of the black voting age population in every southern state. The number of black elected officials in the South more than doubled from 72 to 159 immediately afterwards in the 1966 elections. But just to give you an idea, even though... Uh, the the 15th Amendment of the Constitution, which was passed almost 100 years earlier at that point, was supposed to deny discrimination at the at the uh, polling place based on uh, race uh, or color. Only 11 percent of uh, of uh, eligible African-American voters, 11 percent were registered to vote in, for example, Alabama in 1956. In 1966, after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, more than, uh, let's see, 51.2% were registered. And that story was true all across the South. The Voting Rights Act made a huge, huge difference. From 1965 to 2013, as our friend Ari Berman notes today in the New York Times, the Justice Department and federal courts blocked more than 3,000 discriminatory voting changes thanks to the Voting Rights Act, specifically Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. At least that was the case until Section 5 was gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013. The 2016 election will now be the first presidential election in 50 years where voters cannot rely on the full protections of the Voting Rights Act, and that matters as Berman explains, because new voting restrictions will be in place in up to 15 states, accounting for as many as 162 electoral votes next year, including swing states like Ohio, Wisconsin, and Virginia. As Nancy Cook Lauer wrote in the Tallahassee Democrat back in 2005 when we celebrated the 40th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act on this very uh, show, she said the Voting Rights Act uh, guaranteed an equal right to vote to every citizen and that it was written in the blood of marchers beaten on a bridge in Selma, Alabama, and in the tears of the families of the murdered freedom riders who had come before them. The National Voting Rights Museum and Institute in Selma, Alabama, was established in 1993 at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, scene of the horrible Bloody Sunday March from Selma to Montgomery in that fight for voting rights that led directly to the passage of the Voting Rights Act and its signing by President Lyndon B. Johnson in 1965. Sam Walker, a native of Selma, was just 12 years old during those marches in 1965, and he now serves as historian for the National Voting Rights Museum and Institute, which documents the history of voting rights in America and brings to life the pivotal events leading up to the signing of the Voting Rights Act. The museum was developed by participants and supporters of the voting rights movement of the 1960s to document the struggles of those Americans dedicated to equal treatment under the law for all Americans. Sam Walker was on my show 10 years ago today on August 6, 2005 to celebrate at the time the 40th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act since so much has happened since then. And I'm proud to say he joins us again today from Selma uh, as I know, there are many commemorations and activities going on down there on this 50th anniversary. Uh, Sam Walker, I'm really delighted you're able to take the time to join us again today. Welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Well, thank you. It's good to be back on your show, man. I look forward to participating. It's been, it's been, it's been great. Uh, it's so great to have you back. Uh, all right, so much has happened since uh, we last spoke 10 years ago. The Voting Rights Act was reauthorized in 2006 by a Republican-majority Congress, a unanimous vote in the U.S. Senate. Uh, a 25-year reauthorization was signed by Republican President George W. Bush. 
Uh, and, and that happened after you and I had spoken, uh, spoken 10 years ago. Of course, little did we know at that point that eight years later, the Supreme Court would gut the central provision of that Voting Rights Act. Uh, so the fight for voting rights now continues. Uh, and there are, thankfully, some sections that were not gutted of the Voting Rights Act, but there is this virtual tidal wave of voting rights restrictions that have been enacted since we since we spoke, uh, and since, frankly, the summer of 2013. Also, uh, President Barack Obama spoke from the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge earlier this year on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Oh, I think they made a movie about Selma. So, Sam, I wanted to talk about how things have changed there in Selma over the past decade. But before we do, can we take a few minutes just to go back uh, to the years leading up to the passage of the Voting Rights Act? How did we get to Selma uh, in a minute or two, uh, what led to the March on Bloody Sunday, the passage of the Voting Rights Act? What were some of the challenges that African-Americans faced in their uh, fight to simply register to vote back then? Well, uh, simply put it, the, uh, in order to register to vote, you had to go inside the courthouse of all of the various counties. And the people that worked inside the courthouse would lock the door, wouldn't let people come inside the courthouse to even attempt to sign up. And so the people there in Selma, they initially invited Dr. King to come to Selma to speak at a program, the Emancipation of Proclamation Day program. But while Dr. King was here at the program, the people here in Selma told Dr. King what they were facing at the courthouse, that the people wouldn't let them come into the courthouse. And they asked Dr. King if he would come and help them. First, Dr. King was amazed that this was happening. He didn't realize this was actually happening, that people couldn't go inside a public building. But so when the people asked him would he come and help them, he agreed to come and help them. And as it, once he got involved, they started doing voter activities in other communities, not just in seven, but throughout the central Alabama. There were several other counties that had a, a, a majority black population. Mm-hmm. And he felt those counties should have voting activities also. And he started having people go out, his, his people that worked for him, go out to those counties to try to help those people organize activities. And one of the counties was Perry County, which is the connecting county to Selma County. Selma is located in Dallas County. The connecting county is Perry County. So one of Dr. King's person, person went over to Perry County to help organize meetings, Reverend James Orange. And Reverend Orange was put in jail for help trying to organize. And the talk got at the jail was that the people inside the jail, the people that worked at the jail, they was going to actually lynch Reverend Orange to make an example out of him. And people found out about it. So people was going to go down to the jail to protest. Them attempting to lynch Reverend Orange and down, on their way down to the jail to protest. A confrontation happened with the police and the public. And a young man, Jim Lee Jackson, was in that with the public. He got shot during that confrontation. He was brought to the hospital in Selma. He died as a result of that gunshot eight days after he was shot. So when he died, the people went to go to from Selma to Montgomery, which is the capital is in Montgomery, the capital state of Alabama is in Montgomery. Mm-hmm. They went to go to the capital to, to protest his death. They went to protest at the highest level of state government at the state capital. But the governor of the state at that time was George Wallace. George Wallace said that was an illegal way to, 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 to address a grievance with your government. So if you had a grievance, you had to come one at a time. You couldn't come in no big group. <laughs> and the Ohio State troopers not to let them march from Selma to Montgomery. So on March 7, the people attempted to leave Selma to go to Montgomery. But the state, the, the Governor Wallace had ordered the state troopers not to let them leave Selma. So as the people started to leave Selma, they were attacked by the state troopers and beaten at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which became known as Bloody Sunday. One of the things happened that, that, that the... Uh, the people in the media had their cameras set up when the attack happened. So when people were being beaten and tear gassed, all those scenes were captured by the, by the TV cameras and by the, by the news media on camera. And those pictures were sent back to the TV networks. And those scenes that was where people were being beaten and tear gassed was put on television, which showed all around the world. And that started a new momentum to try to get the right to vote for all citizens. And so once people saw that all, all around the world, and Dr. King said out a call for people of goodwill. He said, if you think what you saw was wrong, you should come to Selma and stand with us. And people responded. People got up from all over the country, came to Selma. And so that guy gave a whole new level of, of, of involvement for people all over the country. And so, so when people, when the, when, the, when, the, when the voting rights bill came up for Congress to vote on the bill, Congress was being lobbied by people from all over the country because people from all over the country had come to Selma and got involved. Mm. So it wasn't just it wasn't just you know people from Alabama, people from the southern areas lobbying their congressional members, but it was people from all over the country lobbying Congress to do this law, get this new law because they had saw the effects of what was happening. They needed, they understood that the importance of that law. And I'm gonna end with this because President Lyndon Johnson says it best. He says the the right to vote is is, is the most important right that we have. 
it does. And and it's also, you know, the fact that you point out that it was the national media that was there that shocked the conscience of the nation. It's it's kind of a. Uh, well, I don't want to say ironic, but it's interesting as we look back now, we're seeing all of this uh, all of this video come out in the modern era from the iPhones and so forth. And, and that's had a big impact on the Black Lives Matters movement, the fact that people are seeing this. It sounds like uh, you're really giving credit to the national media, the importance of the spotlight on what happened there and letting the rest of the country see what was actually going on, that's really what uh, you, see, you, you see as the turning point in this fight, the fact that uh, the well, rest of well, the nation well. saw what you had seen for so many years? Well, see, see what had been happening before then is that people had been getting beaten before. That wasn't the first time people had gotten beaten and gotten tear gas. Right. But because the media was expecting something to happen because the governor issued that ban against them, all, the mm-hmm. media showed up and they were in position. And so when it, when it did happen, when the attack did happen, they were able to capture that attack right there on the, with their cameras, and because they was captured, and that's when it was sent back to the back to the you know all around the world and all around the country, mm-hmm. so people got a chance to see for themselves. You know, if the media hadn't been there that day, people would have still got beaten. But what 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 they would have played it off and saying, you know, just a few blacks raising sand over nothing. Well, because and year, that would have been the end of it. Yeah, years uh, had gone by uh, without the nation uh, uh, being outraged about this. With, uh, as you say, uh, I believe last time you, you, we spoke, you told me you could get arrested uh, just for walking in the street talking about registering to vote if you were in a group of if, if three or more. That's, that's correct. They they passed a local ordinance here in Selman. The local judge, you know, they passed all those little crazy local laws, or so the local judge passed an ordinance what was called the non-assembly ordinance. Mm-hmm. And that ordinance said if you were in a group of three or more just walking down the street talking about registering the vote, you could be arrested for illegal public assembly. And so that was actually a law. Before the Voting Rights Act, that was a law that people could, you know, people could actually be arrested by that law. Uh, un- unbelievable. And, uh, and, and the, the, in the Jim Crow era, I know there was all kinds of restrictions. You mentioned uh, you know, just going to the Capitol uh, uh, to register, to the county to register. Uh, that they would close the doors. They only allowed you to register, wasn't it, two days uh, right, uh, out of the month? Two days a month. Two days a month. The first Monday and the third Monday were the only two days you could go and attempt to register. But on those, those were the days when they would see people coming to the door. They would lock the door and wouldn't let you come inside. Wow. That's so you still <laughs> couldn't register, even though they said those were the two days that, you know, that you were, you were, you were allowed to register. Mm-hmm. You still couldn't register because they, you couldn't get inside the building to sign up. I'm speaking with Sam Walker, the uh, historian at the National Voting Rights Museum and Institute in Selma, Alabama, at the foot of the uh, infamous Edmund Pettus Bridge. Uh, You told me uh, when we spoke last time that uh, you had an incident where uh, one of these troopers, and I guess there was hundreds of them on the bridge at the time uh, that ended up uh, beating the marchers there. Uh, But you you, you said you had an encounter with one of those troopers who actually came by to that museum some years later. Do, do you remember that story? Can you, can you uh, tell us Yeah, that? We, 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 we opened the museum in March of 1993, and about six months after we'd opened, our board, uh, one of our board members, Senator Hank Sanders, came up with an idea that we wanted to start collecting cards from people that we say that was there. We say, I was there. Was mm-hmm. an I was there card. Mm-hmm. It's a small three-by-five card. And if you was one of the persons on the scene, we asked you to make a statement on that card. And we, we unveiled the... We unveiled the uh, the exhibit about, I think, in October of 93. And a couple of weeks after we unveiled the exhibit, it was a white salesman came into the museum. We was attempting to sell a membership for Sam's Wholesale Store. <laughs> and we explained to him about the new exhibit that we had just unveiled. And at that point, he said, well, give me a card. I was there. I almost fell to my knees, you know. He said, yeah, I was there. And he went on to tell me that he was a state trooper back in 1965, actually on the bridge on Bloody Sunday. He had been called in as part of the extra backup force. They had called him in. He lived all the way down in Mobile, which is about a three-hour drive from Selma. But he came, they had called him to come up and join, you know, to be, be the additional uh, reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came up and never, they never told him why he was, what he was supposed to be doing. He said the next thing you know, he started beating folks. He was in line with the other state troopers. And he started beating folks like everybody else. But now he said when he went back home to Mobile, he felt so bad about what he had been a part of that he actually resigned from the state trooper force one month later. Wow. Uh, that's just amazing. I'm I'm actually kind of surprised there haven't been more of those state troopers that came forward over the years to sort of apologize for what happened. Uh, do you feel? Um, well, how how have things changed down there in Selma, Alabama, since 
we've talked a little bit about how it's changed since the passage of the Voting Rights Act, but have things changed uh, at Selma, at the uh, National Voting Rights Museum, since the Supreme Court gutted the central provision, Section 5 uh, of the Voting Rights Act? How, how have things changed, if at all, down there since then? In oh, yeah, it's changed because it, 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 has, it makes you refocus on, 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 on the uh, new, new efforts for the movement, you know. Mm-hmm. Now we, you know, we were we were always telling people that those protections were in place, and they just had to understand, and they could they could they could go to the federal courts or go to the uh, the justice department, but for you know if they had problems in their local communities, but that's not the case anymore, you know, because mm-hmm. because they took away that that protection that that was guaranteed by Congress in the Voting Rights Act, as you said, Section Five. So now you know you got to find other strategies to how to how to how to fight the the discriminative discriminative mm-hmm. you know efforts that are being put forward and so one of the ways that we're doing at the museum now is we you know we're trying to make sure people are organizing their communities on the local level and making sure that they understand their rights as, as you know on the local level whatever whatever those laws are on the local level make sure those are laws that are you know that's consistent with federal law you know and when people try to pass those new laws, like in Alabama, they've tried to pass a bunch of new laws. Yep. So you still have to fight them. You can't fight them with Section 5, but you can still fight them through other, other means, and that's what we try to do. And we had uh, some, uh, a, some uh, actually, fairly major victory in Texas yesterday concerning yes. that. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more with my uh, next guest, Catherine Culleton Gonzalez of the Advancement Project. So some good news. Uh, parts of the voting rights that stand are still there uh, to hopefully protect voters uh, somewhat, at least in the 2016 election. There's a lot moving there. But uh, Sam Walker, uh, how did you like the movie? Sel- I'm going to guess you saw the movie Selma. Uh, how how did you like it? And do you feel that it accurately portrayed uh, that historic moment in in your hometown down there? Well, number one, I liked the movie. I thought it was an excellent uh, excellent work. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, it was a movie, so it didn't it didn't it didn't tell the whole story, but it told a good story. Mm-hmm. And the good story was that you know. One of the things that we had tried to do at the Voting Rights Museum for 20 years was highlight the people we called the foot soldiers. You know, we tried to identify who the people were that was with Dr. King but didn't have, a, didn't have the leadership role, mm-hmm. but they were just there making those sacrifices. And so that movie spotlighted those people that we called the foot soldiers. They had a spotlight on them during the, during the, during the filming of the movie, movie and, you know, as a part of the movie. And so I thought that was really an excellent part of it, that, that those folks that we had been trying to recognize for 20 years, they got recognition from this movie, which more recognition than that one movie than we had been doing for 20 years. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was something that we had been trying to do, so I was a proud that it happened for them. You know? And then coming off the heels of the 50th anniversary, again, the foot soldiers was highlighted and spotlighted during the 50th anniversary. So the people that really deserve to be recognized after 50 years, they got proper recognition. I thought that was the best thing of the movie for me. And I'm guessing there's been a groundswell of interest in the uh, museum down there in Selma uh, since that uh, movie came out, and since uh, President Obama came and spoke at the Brit. Did he come to the? Uh, uh, did he come to the Selma mu- the, uh, yeah, museum while he was there? He toured the museum. Him and his daughter, his wife, his mother-in-law, and nice. several members of his cabinet, Susan Rice, several other members of the cabinet. They all came and toured the museum. We actually have a, a an Obama exhibit at the museum. So he got a chance to see the exhibit we have about him. He was all he was very happy. I got a chance to take a picture with him. Nice. Yeah, he was he, he was very you know very grateful that you know we've done that for him. So very you know, nice. He really enjoyed. He really enjoyed it. Uh, the uh, we've got just a, a minute or so here left, Sam Walker. Um, with, with this attack uh, that we're seeing on the Voting Rights Act uh, by Republicans, I'm sorry to say, Republicans who used to be in favor of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, And now it seems there's really seemingly no Republicans willing to do the right thing to fix what the Supreme uh, Court broke in the summer of 2013 with the Voting Rights Act. Nonetheless, are you hopeful about where things go from here or are you worried? I'm looking to you, Sam. I'm I'm turning to you for some hope. What do you got for me down there? (laughs) Well, there's tremendous hope because. We have an effort that's on, on uh, that's going on right now. That started a week ago, this past Saturday. That they walking from Selma all the way to Washington D.C. Mm. The NAACP is sponsoring a march from Selma all the way to Washington D.C. To really, they, we're going to rally at, at 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 the Capitol on September the fifteenth. And so, uh, and so, and so, and so, you know, so so other people have taken up the fight. Mm. You know, they got a big movement going over 
on over North Carolina, the Moral Monday movement, mm-hmm. even the Black Life movement. You know, the Black Life movement is now taking off, and now you know that can also be a part of the voting rights movement and voting rights efforts. So I'm hopeful that because now more people see that it's important that they get involved, and more people are getting involved. So that's that's hopefully that'll give hope to know that more people are getting involved and that people are you know out there working. I I'll, the march continues. I'll take it if that's where I can get my hope. I will. Uh, the march continues, and I'm looking forward, Sam Walker, to one of these days getting down there to the museum and meeting you in person. Uh, always great speaking to you, my friend. Uh, let's not wait 10 years uh, next time to have you back on the show. Sounds like a winner. That's at least two for five, if, no, if, not, if not sooner. Okay, very good. Yeah, we'll do that for sure. Uh, Sam Walker, the historian at the National Voting Rights Museum and Institute in Selma, Alabama. You can get more information on that museum, and you should go visit, even if I haven't yet. Uh, their website is NVRMI, that's National Voting Rights Museum and Institute.com, NVRMI. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and our special commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act will continue. We'll take a look at what is going on right now, today, in the state of Texas and around the country, as the fight to restore the Voting Rights Act continues. We'll be speaking with Catherine Culleton-Gonzalez of the Advancement Project. That and much more are straight ahead on this very special broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Please stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. We are here, and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't going to let nobody turn us around. (laughs) Hey, I want to tell the city of Selma, tell them, Doctor. Today I want to say to the state of Alabama, yes, sir. Today I want to say to the people of America, and the nations of the world. We are not about to turn around. Yes, sir. We are on the move now. Yes, sir. Yes, we are on the move, and no wave of racism can stop us. Oh, come along. Welcome back to the Bradcast. A big day. It is the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, the landmark Voting Rights Act. I suppose it would have been a much bigger day had the Supreme Court not gutted the Voting Rights Act uh, two years ago in the summer of 2013. But we are seeing perhaps maybe some encouraging signs uh, that at least the part of the Voting Rights Act that is still standing uh, may protect Voters, as we move forward in the future, there's a lot of unanswered questions here about where the Voting Rights Act goes from here. Back in 2006, it was overwhelmingly uh, reauthorized for 25 years, uh, unanimously in the Senate, nearly unanimously in the House, signed by George W. Bush. But all of that fell apart once the Supreme Court decided to get into the game. And we have had nothing but... Uh, legal battles ever since in state after state after state where Republicans took advantage of the uh, Supreme Court gutting the Voting Rights Act in order to restrict voting rights. But the fight continues. And here to talk about that fight and where we go from here is Catherine Culleton Gonzalez, a senior attorney and director of voter protection for the Advancement Project the nonprofit organization that works to protect fundamental voting rights for all Americans. 
Culleton Gonzalez is a former senior attorney in the voting rights section, uh, the voting section of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. She also serves as co-chair of the Hispanic National Bar Association Civil Rights Committee. Catherine Culleton Gonzalez, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act with you. It, it, thank you. It is very exciting. It would be even more exciting uh, had we not uh, had that decision from the Supreme Court two years ago. But uh, for the moment, let's let's focus on some good news. What happened yesterday in the state of Texas at the uh, the, the federal uh, appeals court there, striking down, for the most part at least, uh, the Republican photo ID restriction. What is your uh, what is your reaction to that decision at the federal court, federal appeals court on Wednesday? And what does that mean uh, for the future when it comes to these photo ID restriction laws? Yeah, just yesterday, the federal appeals court in the Fifth Circuit um, um, issued a very positive decision um, against Texas's strict and discriminatory voter ID law, and uh, it's it's a law that has disenfranchised about 600,000 people in Texas. Quite a high number of people don't have the type of strict ID that Texas would have required. Um, you know, so they um, take a gun permit, but not a student ID. And, you know, many people who don't have access to these strict IDs um, uh, uh, are, are disenfranchised or their, or their voting rights are burdened, the court held. Um, and that it has a racially discriminatory effect or racially discriminatory results because of uh, the poverty and the disparities that African Americans and Latinos live in in the state of Texas, mm-hmm. this strict voter ID law had a discriminatory result. Um, so it was a very positive ruling, uh, very helpful in the post-Shelby era, um, but I also do see this era that we're in um, as a time where we're going backwards in voting rights across the country. This decision um, is, is wonderful. It's still probably going to go up to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that everyone listening knows that these kind of voting rights issues are happening across the country. And the litigation took many, many years. Um, it was started under the former Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. So it used to be that states uh, like Texas, who had uh, long histories of discrimination in voting, had to submit their changes in voting for a federal judge or the Department of Justice to pre-clear them and say, look, you know, you can't do this because it will be discriminatory, or go ahead and do what you'd like to because we can't see that for sure that it will be discriminatory. So that stopped these things. Um, Many of these types of of voter ID laws and all kinds of other voter suppression laws in their tracks, so they weren't test-driven during elections. And, uh, you know, this law actually was in effect in the 2014 election. And under... um, under the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. um, Section 5, that's been just eviscerated by the Supreme Court, it would have been stopped in its tracks. It, uh, we actually won that. Uh, my organization, Advancement Project, along with many other organizations, litigated under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, stopped this law in 2012. Mm-hmm. And two um, hours after the Supreme Court ruled that Section 5 uh, uh, was no longer constitutional and that Congress should look for a new formula for Section 5, the Texas Attorney General actually tweeted that he's going to um, reinstate this discriminatory voter ID law. So as you can imagine, this is a great and wonderful victory and um, cause for celebration on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, but we also have to put it in context. Since the Supreme Court took away Section 5 and, the con- and Congress has refused to act, we have seen a deluge of attempted discrimination and out-and-out discrimination in voting across the country, especially in the South. So we need to make sure to put Section 5 back, and I'd love to talk with you more about that. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that, too, because that was really, uh, Section 5 was really the uh, the landmark hook in, this, uh, in the Voting Rights Act, and Section 2, of the Voting Rights Act still uh, bars discrimination based on uh, you know race and so forth at the polling place in all 50 states. But what was remarkable about the Voting Rights Act was Section 5 that uh, actually required these jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination to get approval for new laws because uh, it had been in the old you know Jim Crow South. They would pass one law after another that was found to be unconstitutional, but by the time it was found to be unconstitutional, it was too late. And so 
talk a little bit about uh, what made Section Five so remarkable in the uh, in the Voting Rights Act, and is have we ever had any other type of law? I, I don't think people understand how historically important and successful the Voting Rights Act was because of specifically uh, the the unusual uh, requirements of Section Five. Yeah, thank you. So Section 5 was passed as part of the Voting Rights Act because if we think back 50 years ago, you know, there were decades of poll taxes and literacy tests and all kinds of different ways that jurisdictions would try to prevent African Americans and Latinos from voting. And so they changed the method over and over again, as you said. So, um, you know, one day it would be a poll tax. The next day it would be a literacy test. The next day another literacy test would, would be passed. The next day you needed a, a, an African-American in the South, needed a white person to vouch for them to vote. Mm. Uh, you needed to, They had very strict residency requirements. Anybody who had a felony conviction couldn't vote. All kinds of different methods. And so it was sort of like the whack-a-mole game that you see at the boardwalk on the beach, trying mm. to beat back these methods one by one. And so Congress decided, um, based on a very clear record, that we needed an umbrella of protection over states that had this ongoing history of discrimination, that any voting change they wanted to make, they should get it pre-cleared or pre-approved by the federal government through a federal court or through the Department of Justice. So it was kind of like a regulatory scheme, right? We have other things in our legal system that also need to be pre-approved. You need to like do an environmental impact statement, for mm-hmm. example, to get... Um, you know, certain construction were um, pre-approved. And so uh, this was required based on those circumstances. But as you say, the Voting Rights Act was renewed over and over and over again. It was renewed um, uh, um, at an overwhelming majority of of the Congress, a a Republican Congress, in fact, in 2006. Um, And for some reason, the Supreme Court struck down the formula for Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And that was June 25th of 2013, you know, I was there, I was listening to the decision, it was just unbelievable, even though we knew that things weren't uh, very easy in the Supreme Court, it was unbelievable to think that the Supreme Court thought that um, that things had changed so much that there was no more discrimination in voting. And that certainly um, has been the case in the South. So since that decision, um, the states that used to have to get preclearance, um, there were uh, 16 states that were either partially or fully covered don't have to get any preclearance. And one of them is North Carolina. And what's happened in North Carolina is uh, we represent the North Carolina NAACP. Mm-hmm. And um, we are litigating against a law. Um, Advancement Project is suing against basically a very comprehensive voter suppression law. So since Section 5 was eviscerated, mm-hmm. North Carolina immediately passed five different types of restrictions on voting. And all of those restrictions pretty much surgically target the African-American community and the state's growing Latino community. So they cut early voting days. They cut souls to the polls um, because it's a tradition in the African-American churches and many Latino churches that on Sunday to, to register to vote. So they cut the, the souls to the polls days. Uh, they cut out-of-precinct voting. They cut pre-registration of young people of, of, of 16- and 17-year-olds Nobody really can understand why, because they say this is due to voter fraud, but there is not an ounce of proof of voter fraud, and that's something that um, that Advancement Project proved in, in trial in the last few weeks. There is quite a bit of discrimination in voting, and uh, it's just unacceptable. It's the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. We really need to put Section 5 back. This is not acceptable. This is not a democracy. And, and largely, all of those uh, restrictions in North Carolina that uh, as that, uh, that trial uh, ca- case is ongoing right now, all of those restrictions either were or would have been turned down, I believe, uh, blocked by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act had it still been standing. North Carolina, like Texas, uh, like Wisconsin, and like a whole bunch of other states, they basically waited. They waited until the Supreme Court knocked down Section 5. They had all of these laws, and Texas didn't wait. They tried to pass it even when uh, Section 5 was in place, and uh, due to the work uh, of Advancement Project and others down there, that law was blocked, was found to be illegal in violation against the, uh, uh, in, in violation of the U.S. Constitution. But once, once the uh, Section 5 was done away with, it was like all bets were off all across the country, which in and of itself seems to prove the racial intent, or at least the intent to discriminate, to keep people from voting of these very laws. 
will the uh, Catherine uh, Colton Gonzalez of uh, the Advancement Project, will the decision that was made in Texas by the U.S. Uh, appeals court, I know that'll go to the uh, Supreme Court most likely, but will that have any effect on the North Carolina trial, the ongoing uh, uh, trial in federal court in North Carolina right now? Or is that something that it won't matter until uh, it, this all ends up before the Supremes? Uh, well, I'm not on the trial team, but in my personal opinion, it's a very positive decision mm-hmm. uh, because it reinforces that Section 2 applies to uh, what's called vote denial. And so um, and voter ID um, is not part of the North Carolina litigation at the moment, but it may be again in the future. But it actually spells out the standard for Section 2 very well for vote denial cases. And so I do think um, it will have a positive impact. Um, it's uh, a different outcome than the Wisconsin case that I worked on, um, uh, where we were unable to use Section 2 to stop another strict and discriminatory voter ID law. So very, very glad for this decision, and I hope that the Supreme Court will uphold it. And I do think that it's helpful. We've had other positive decisions about vote denial um, coming out of Ohio and a good decision by the Court of Appeals um, in the North Carolina case uh, last mm-hmm. year. And so, you know, we'll have to see how this all comes out. So it, it is very positive. It also, you know, just ex- highlights the need to revitalize the Voting Rights Act in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, because these are not the only cases, the ones that you and I are talking about now. Right. There are many, many voting changes across the country, and particularly in the South, at the local level that do all kinds of maneuvers of politicians trying to manipulate the vote, moving polling places away from people of color. Uh, that happens a lot in the Native American community, the African American community. We've seen um, laws requiring documentary proof of citizenship that have a strong disparate impact on the Latino community and the African American community. So, for example, if you're a naturalized citizen and you don't have those papers, it's going to cost you at least $600 to get what's needed mm. to prove citizenship in some of these states. And all of this would have been subject to Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. We worked on the Voting Rights Advancement Act, which was introduced um, last month on the anniversary of, sorry, two months ago, we're in August now, on the anniversary of the Shelby decision, and it would put back Section 5's protections um, in states like North Carolina and Texas and Alabama and Virginia and uh, South Carolina and Florida and Georgia and Louisiana, also California and New York and Arkansas. These are all states that there's been very strong indicia of ongoing discrimination in voting um, in the last couple of years. And we hope that the Supreme Court would uphold it because they asked for a new formula based on current conditions. And as you say, all we have to do is look around us, unless they're living in a bubble, they can see that there's been you know, a renaissance in discrimination in voting since they took away that protection. Well, I'm afraid there are a lot of people in this country living in a bubble, uh, a bubble, I think, that known as Fox News, to be frank. Uh, but with that said, and they have no idea. They they actually believe this nonsense that these laws are meant to, uh, you know, block some epidemic of voter fraud, an epidemic of voter fraud that simply does not exist. I want to talk about the future of the Voting Rights Act, the fate of it, if, if it can be uh, fixed. You had mentioned uh, a proposed fix in, uh, in in Congress for that act, and I want to talk about what traction or lack of traction that's getting. But uh, earlier, Catherine, you had mentioned that when the Voting Rights Act was passed, there was a very clear record of this discrimination, and that that's one of the things that helped uh, pass the act. It wasn't just the clear record of discrimination, obviously. It was uh, a very clear uh, record of people standing up, raising hell, protesting, trying to fight uh, for the right to vote, trying to cross that Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, you know, to go uh, from Selma to Montgomery to, to, to register to vote. And, and uh, you know, people across the country seeing these uh, people who, who all they wanted to do was participate in their democracy and facing violence, getting beaten up. So that was all very clear. And it seems like that was clear for many decades, and people understood the importance of the act even up until uh, George W. Bush reauthorized it for 25 years. But something happened, and I'm trying to figure out what happened, what changed. Uh, Catherine, I know you were an attorney in the voting rights section uh, at, uh, at the DOJ. When Actually, when were you uh, a, a, an attorney with the uh, voting section there? What years? 
2003 to 2008. Oh, brother. Okay, so you were you were in there for the worst of uh, of that. Uh, how explain how in uh, you know in, on one in one side we've got uh, George W. Bush reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act for 25 years, and on the other side, the voting uh, section in the Civil Rights Division just being chipped away by these political operatives that were appointed by George W. Bush. How do you explain the? Uh, uh, how do you explain what happened there and what you saw as an attorney at that time that this was going on in the uh, in the Department of Justice? Um, there's a, a recent New York Times article about, you know, the undermining of the Voting Rights Act uh, over the last 50 years. And it talks about some of the forces um, that were influencing the Department of Justice. And that actually, um, I believe, is very credible. Um, there were um, a lot of people looking into voter fraud. I actually came in at a time when it was starting to change, um, and they started to actually be open to hiring people who are civil rights lawyers. And my background in civil rights wasn't a, de- a detriment, but it's seen as something that was acceptable. Um, so, Wait, let me clarify that. Your background in civil rights was seen as acceptable for being in the civil rights division at the exactly. Department of Justice by, exactly. the, by the Bush Department? Okay. So, yeah, there was a few exposés that, that, you know, I found to be true. And there's also, you know, uh, but I think that the New York Times article that came out very recently, you know, it's just, it, it, I agree with it. And um, um, I think, so, yeah, there were lots of investigations and lots of accusations by Hans von Spaskowski that um, that people who had a background in civil rights were somehow, uh, you know, not the right people that he wanted in the voting section. And so... Um, you know, that's all public knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think also, I'm just going to talk about, you know, the mood in the country or the narrative in the country today. Yeah. Um, um, so I, we talked about the marches. We talked mm-hmm. about the marches. And we're on the, we're the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. And I went to the 50th anniversary of the, of the march um, in Selma. And I was very honored to see John Lewis again yesterday and be at the People's Agenda convening. Um, in Atlanta, Georgia, it was convened by Helen Butler and by Martin Luther King III. Um, and what, by, by that, I mean to say there are many people in the civil rights movement and in the voting rights movement who have their eye on this, and we need other folks to join us and build a next-generation voting rights movement. There's going to be a journey for justice, a march by the NAACP to Washington. And I also think, talking about the mood of the country today, uh, people of color are fed up with the police violence, with the police brutality, with mass incarceration, with immigrants being treated as if they're not even human beings, with mothers and children fleeing violence from Central America being uh, detained. And so we do have an emerging new activism. And I do believe that it's connected also with voting rights because we see the disempowerment that comes when um, people are left out of democracy. We see um, things like Ferguson uh, um, and an all-white city council and an all-white police department mistreating folks. And part of that change that needs to happen is to have more diversity in our government, among prosecutors, among sheriffs, among city councils, on school boards. There's a crisis in education, too. So I do believe that um, there's there's a good chance that people are going to wake up and smell the coffee uh, if they haven't already. Um, in some communities, it's very painfully obvious that there's disenfranchisement. And I think, yeah. you know, this show and, and, and your blog helps um, other folks understand um, that people don't have the right to vote. They're not going to be able to get people elected or, you know, run for office themselves um, to put in, po- in place policies that stop, you know, all of this violence and all of this discrimination in our country. Everything. So, yeah, everything. Everything comes back to that vote, to elections, to the right to vote. I know that I drive people. I have driven people crazy for years at, at Bradblog.com, you know, reporting on these issues, covering these issues. Uh, hey, don't you have anything else to talk about? Well, yeah, I have a lot to talk about. But in the end, my opinions, my belief, where I think we should go, none of that matters if people can't vote, if people don't vote, and then ultimately if people don't have their votes counted and counted accurately. So it all comes back to elections. Uh, Catherine Colton Gonzalez, I've got just a minute or so left, uh, and we'll talk about this more in the future because the fight will continue, unfortunately, for, for quite some while. But uh, we had uh, Martin O'Malley, uh, who's, who's running for the uh, presidential nomination on the Democratic side, calling for a voting uh, an amendment to the Constitution. 
specifically uh, requiring uh, the spelling out the right to vote for all uh, eligible Americans. Uh, but the Voting Rights Act itself is still in disrepair. And while, you know, back in 2006, every single Republican in the Senate was in favor of it. Now, it's it seems they can't even get a vote on fixing it at all. There seems no interest whatsoever on the Republican side. How does this change? How does this fix? How does the logjam uh, get broken uh, to, to repair what we have lost when it comes to voting rights, Catherine? Well, presidential candidates are talking about the right to vote. At Advancement Project, we are in favor of a specific and fundamental constitutional right to vote, and we have a project pushing for that from the state level up. Um, And I just want to say, I guess I'll quote Reverend Barber um, of North Carolina and also um, Penda Hare, who litigated um, the North Carolina case. This is our Selma. Today, this is our Selma. These voting rights issues are our Selma. And people didn't die for this right for us to let it go in this generation. Across the country, there's voter suppression. And people are going to wake up and, and see and hear. And there's a movement going. And there's a movement that's growing and growing. And it's going to continue to grow. And so when I think back 50 years ago, about what it is that the people who marched across that bridge thought about. Um, They didn't think that it was impossible for African Americans to have equality and the right to vote, or for Latinos to also have equality and the right to vote. It certainly didn't seem possible at the time, and this was after decades and decades of severe voter suppression, but that march happened, and then the Voting Rights Act was passed, and we can do it again. I hope you're right. Uh, your optimism is uh, contagious today on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. So I'm I'm going to go with you and say, yes, we can do it again. Uh, our Selma, indeed. Uh, Catherine Culleton Gonzalez of AdvancementProject.org. Thank you for joining us on this very important day uh, and uh, for, well, offering all of the information on both the history, where we've come from and where we are going from here. And frankly, uh, my thanks to the Advancement Project for what you guys are doing to fight for voting rights in every state in the country. Thank you, Catherine. And let's uh, let's get you back on the broadcast sometime in the near future. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you very much for having us. You bet. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more of our 50th anniversary commemoration of the Voting Rights Act. Some memories, some thoughts, some sounds from Congressman John Lewis and others on the Bloody Sunday March across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the signing of the Voting Rights Act by Lyndon Baines Johnson 50 years ago today. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Please stay tuned. The most traumatic experience that I had as a child was when I took the opportunity or the chance to march on the Bloody Sunday March. We have the right to walk to Montgomery if our feet can get us there. I understand one was uh, so brutally beaten that he had to be rushed to the hospital in Birmingham with a possible brain concussion. Their cause must be our cause, too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. from bradblog.com on this 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. In 1965, John Lewis was a uh, 25-year-old man who had joined the Civil Rights Movement and uh, helped lead that march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama on Bloody Sunday. He was beaten and bloodied by state troopers. But that fight led uh, quite directly to Lyndon Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act. Forty years later, on this show, we aired some thoughts from John Lewis, now Congressman John Lewis from Georgia. We aired those thoughts for the first time 
on this uh, on this show. Here's a, bit, a little bit of that as uh, Congressman John Lewis spoke about President Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act and the importance of that act 40 years later as we are now 50 years later. Because of what happened in Selma on Bloody Sunday, March 7, 1965, there was a sense of righteous indignation all across America. President Lyndon Johnson was moved. He came before the Congress and delivered one of the most meaningful speeches any American president have ever delivered on the question of civil rights or voting rights. He spoke to the nation. He spoke to the Congress. He spoke out of his heart, out of his soul. He started that speech off that night by saying, I speak tonight for the dignity of man and for the destiny of democracy. President Johnson went on to say at time, history and fate meet in a single place in man unending such a freedom. So it was more than a century ago at Lexington and at Concord. So it was at Appomattox. So it was last week in Selma, Alabama. He condemned the violence in Selma. He introduced the Voting Rights Act. And before he concluded that speech, President Johnson said over and over again, and we shall overcome. That was the first time in the President of the United States using the theme song of the Civil Rights Movement. I was sitting next to Martin Luther King Jr. in the home of a local family in Selma. I looked at Dr. King and tears came down his face. He was so moved. And we all cried a little. They hear Lyndon Johnson say, and we shall overcome. The Congress debated the voting rights act as introduced by President Johnson. And on August 6, 1965, President Lyndon Johnson signed that act into law. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 made it possible for hundreds, thousands, and millions of people who have been denied the right to participate in a democratic process to become participants. All across the South, the next few weeks and months, people registered by hundreds and by the thousands. In 1965, there were less than 50 black elected officials in the 11 Southern states. Today, there are several thousand. The Voting Rights Act has brought about what I call a nonviolent revolution, a revolution of values, a revolution of ideas. The act was good and necessary in 1965. 40 years later, in 2005, the act is still good and it's still necessary. It hadn't been for the Voting Rights Act, hadn't been for the leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. and the participant and involvement of so many people. Hadn't been for the Congress and the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, America could have been a much more divided nation. But the act helped liberate not just African Americans, but all Americans. We are better people, and our country is a better country because of the Voting Rights Act. President Johnson introduced the act. The Congress passed the act, but this act was written by the brave and courageous people, ordinary people in the Delta of Mississippi, in the Black Belt of Alabama, in Southwest Georgia. These were the people who literally put their bodies on the line some died, some was beaten, and some was jailed. But they changed America forever. They changed America forever. That was Congressman John Lewis speaking on this show 10 years ago, 40 years after the Voting Rights Act was signed. We are now 50 years after it was signed, and the fight for voting rights, unfortunately, continues. We'll do our part here at the Bradcast and on bradblog.com, and I hope you and everyone within the sound of my voice will join me. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and to my guests today, Sam Walker of the National Voting Rights Museum in Selma, Alabama, and Catherine Culleton-Gonzalez of The Advancement Project. 
We'll be back with you soon. Yes, debate coverage coming in our next program. You're not going to want to miss that. Until then, if you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it at bradblog.com, and you can follow me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>